Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you aren't already. We post weekly episodes here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. And if you have a minute, I would love for you to rate the podcast as well. I love reading your guys' reviews, seeing ways that we can improve it and what would be the most enjoyable for you to listen to. So go ahead and do that if you have the chance. And with that being said, let's move on into today's case. As you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the murder of Sandra Cantu. Sandra was eight years old when she died on March 27th, 2009 in Tracy, California. Sandra was born on March 8th, 2001 to her mother, Maria Chavez. Sandra was described as someone who was completely full of life. She was a little girl who had a huge heart and she shared it with everyone she came in contact with. Sandra loved riding her bike. She loved making people laugh. She just loved people in general. She was described as always being the first one to tell someone that they looked pretty. At the time of her murder, Sandra was living with her mother, her three older siblings, as well as her grandparents at the Orchard Estates Mobile Home Park. At the time, this mobile park had about a hundred residents, and according to Sandra's Aunt Angie, she said that the park was a really close, tight-knit community, and everyone in it knew each other, and for the most part, trusted each other as well well. Tracy was also not a small town. At the time of Sandra's disappearance, the population in Tracy was at about 79,000 people. So because of this and because she wanted her children to be safe, Sandra's mom Maria always told her kids never to leave the trailer park when they would go out and play. They were under strict instructions to always stay inside the mobile home neighborhood. Now March 27th, 2008 was a Friday. And this started out like any average normal day for Sandra. She woke up, she went to school, and she walked home like she always did. Sandra was a very social child, so every time she would walk home from school, she would stop off and say hi to the people in the mobile park neighborhood that she lived in. Now on this particular day, Sandra walked home from school and arrived at her house at about 4 p.m. And once she got settled in, she told her mom that she was going to go out and play at another friend's house, which her mother said was fine, but she reminded Sandra that she needed to be home later for dinner and not to stay out too long. However, this was not the case. After Sandra left the house, hours kept passing and it kept getting later and later until it was right before 8 o'clock p.m. And when Sandra still wasn't home, Maria decided that it would be best to call a few of Sandra's friends in the neighborhood 
could. However, when none of the people that she called claimed to have seen Sandra, that is when Maria knew that something was wrong and immediately called the police to report Sandra as a missing person. Now, when authorities arrived at Sandra's home, they immediately started canvassing the area to see if they could find her. However, Sandra was nowhere to be found. Something that made police hopeful was that Sandra's grandfather had actually just put in a surveillance camera outside of the family home to prevent any vandalism, so authorities thought it was a great possibility that anything that Sandra did could have been recorded on these cameras. And when authorities looked through the camera footage, they saw Sandra walking across the street in front of her house before moving out of the frame at approximately a little after 4 o'clock p.m. when she was leaving to go to a friend's house. Police were really happy to have this footage because it definitely helped them in being able to secure a time frame. However, it didn't help in knowing where Sandra went to once she exited out of the camera angle. Now, at first, authorities thought it was a very good possibility that Sandra's biological father could have been involved in her disappearance. He hadn't been in Sandra's life since Sandra was really young, and at the time, him and Maria were going through a child support payment battle, so authorities thought there was a possibility that he could have been involved. However, after looking through his time frame and seeing if he had an alibi, they were able to rule him out because he was actually not in Tracy at the time of Sandra's disappearance. As far as the search for Sandra goes, authorities really put all of their best efforts into this. They used helicopters, they went door to door asking people if they had seen Sandra, they went to local businesses, but all of their efforts were leading them nowhere. So because of this, authorities actually reached out to the FBI's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, also known as CARD, which is a unit specialized in child abductions, and they are able to get anywhere in the country just within four hours, which is really amazing. So authorities reached out to the CARD team, and this team is led by Special Agent Joseph Brine at the time, and they wasted no time getting on a plane and rushing over to Tracy, California to work on Sandra's case. Obviously, the first thing that they did once they got to Tracy was to go to Orchard Estates and interview all the residents that lived there. There were a lot of kids that lived in this neighborhood that would all play with each other. Like I said, people trusted each other here. It was a small neighborhood and it was normal for people to let their kids roam freely throughout this neighborhood. So the FBI interviewed all the residents in the neighborhood and it was a little difficult for the police because they quickly realized that Sandra knew just about everybody that lived in Orchard Estates. She had been in everyone's mobile home. She had made acquaintances with everyone in the park. Her mom said that she was the type of person who loved to help people. So if anyone was ever needing help in the park, Sandra was always the first to volunteer. So because everyone was familiar with Sandra, it made it a little bit more challenging on the police's end because they learned that this wasn't the way that they were going to be able to eliminate a possible suspect list. There was also a concern about the fact that where Sandra lived was located close to the 205 freeway, which connects Tracy to San Francisco, and they were concerned with this because they thought that someone could have easily grabbed Sandra, thrown her in a car, and got onto a major freeway without anyone seeing anything. 
Now, the BAU, which is the Behavioral Analysis Unit, profiled their potential suspect to be a male and who was most likely someone who knew Sandra before her abduction and possibly lived in the trailer park and could even be a sex offender. And even though you might think that this would narrow it down, the list was still pretty long. Police have said that the Orchard Estates mobile home where Sandra lived was filled with people who were either on parole or were registered sex offenders. In the beginning of the investigation, there were two possible persons of interest that authorities looked into at first. One was a man who actually had been caught kissing Sandra on the lips at a local pool when she was only six years old. Police talked to the guy who it was and he said it was a harmless, display of affection. However, he then went on to say that he did have sexual fantasies about young girls between the ages of 9 and 10. The other possible person of interest that police were looking into was an unfamiliar ice cream truck driver who was seen talking to children near Sandra's home around the time of her disappearance, however, was told to get off the property by the mobile home park manager. Now, at this point, authorities had put up roadblocks locks throughout Tracy. They were searching people's cars, they were continuing their helicopter search, and they were really putting a lot of resources in these first few days because as we know, the statistics for finding a child who has been abducted shows that the first 24 to 72 hours are absolutely critical. So police were really putting everything they had into it. However, a couple days into the investigation, authorities ended up getting a tip from a neighbor. Now, this neighbor neighbor is actually the mother of Sandra's best friend, and according to her, she said that a large suitcase of hers had been stolen from her driveway around the same time that Sandra went missing. Now, at this point, no one really knew if there was a connection to this missing suitcase and Sandra's disappearance. It was very likely that someone random just came by and grabbed the suitcase, and so authorities didn't put too much weight into this tip because because they didn't think really anything of it. There wasn't any evidence to prove that this had any connection to Sandra's disappearance at all. There was a candlelight vigil held for Sandra and neighbors as well as FBI agents attended the vigil. Everyone was praying and sharing their condolences when a woman named Melissa Huckabee ran up to the FBI frantically screaming. She was screaming and saying, I found something, I found something, and asking police to follow her. Now, according to authorities, this woman was extremely frantic and shaken up and ran police to where the mailboxes were located. And that's when she pointed to a note on the ground written on a piece of paper that said, quote, Cantu locked in a stolen suitcase, thrown in water on Bacchetti Road and Whitehall Road, signed by witness, end quote. Now, something police immediately noticed about the note that was obvious was the almost purposeful-looking misspellings. The word stolen was spelled, quote, S-T-O-L-I-N, and the word on had two N's at the end of it. 
A handwriting expert looked at the note and determined that it appeared that whoever wrote this tried to camouflage their true handwriting, that way they wouldn't get caught. Authorities didn't know if this note was telling the truth and was actually where Sandra was, or if this note was written in hopes to deflect on the case and steer police off track. However, regardless, authorities knew that they couldn't risk it, so they went down to the pond where the note suggested that Sandra was. Now, this pond was extremely extremely hard to search through because it was right off of a dairy farm and the sewage from the dairy farm was actually emptied into the pond so it made it pretty much impossible for divers to go into the water and search for Sandra because they couldn't see anything once they got down there therefore the initial search came up empty. Even though they weren't able to find Sandra yet, at this point, police then turned their eyes on Melissa Huckabee and wanted to talk to her again to see if she had any more information. Again, Melissa was the woman who found the note saying that Sandra was in the suitcase, and Melissa was also the person who told police about the missing suitcase in her driveway. So this was the same woman. So now this woman has come up twice with police. Now, like I said earlier when mentioning the suitcase, Melissa was a family friend of the Cantu family. She herself was a single mom to a five-year-old also living in the mobile home park. Melissa's grandfather was actually the pastor at the church everyone went to, and Melissa worked at the church as well as a school teacher. Now, when police went to talk to Melissa, Melissa told them that she was very thrown off when the note said that Sandra was in a stolen suitcase because she said her suitcase was in fact big enough to fit a small child in. Now, even though police were putting their focus a little bit more now on Melissa and trying to get her story straight, they were pretty thrown off about all of this because Melissa didn't follow any of the behavioral analysis unit's initial suspect profile. Like we mentioned earlier, they profiled an adult male with a history of sexual misconduct. That is who they initially profiled, and Melissa was just about the opposite of that. And Melissa's alibi for the day that Sandra went missing was that she was alone at her grandfather's church decorating her Sunday school room. Now, phone records do show that Melissa made a call from the church to the manager of the mobile home park where she lived around the time that Sandra went missing, so that does place her at the church. Now, even though she did have somewhat of an alibi, authorities went ahead and searched her vehicle, and when they did this, they discovered a blue sticky note in her car. Now, on this blue sticky note was some handwriting, and this handwriting had actually been like drawn over by some scribbles, so you know when you write something down and you have to cross it out, that's what exactly looked like on this blue sticky note. Now, when this note was given to a handwriting expert, they were able to determine that the writing underneath the scribbles said, Bacchetti, white wall, and water. Now, these three words were also on the note that Melissa had led police to on the night of Sandra's vigil. Now, this made police wonder if Melissa was actually the person who wrote the note. 
Police then got a warrant to search through Melissa's home, and when searching through her nightstand, they found a notebook that had the same exact type of paper as the one that the note was written on. Now, this was definitely a huge red flag for police, but they still weren't certain that Melissa could have been responsible for this. With all of the other predators in the neighborhood, they thought it was a big possibility that these other things that were happening were just coincidences. So now we're at day 11 of the investigation and Sandra is still missing. Now, if you remember when we talked about the pond that was written on the note, there was a dairy farm right next to it that would pour sewage into the pond. And on this particular day, day 11 into the investigation, which was April 6, 2009, there were workers who were working outside of the dairy farm when they stumbled across a suitcase floating in the pond. Without opening the suitcase, these two workers decided to call the police department immediately and authorities arrived on the scene. When looking at the suitcase, it didn't have any identifying marks on it. However, the zippers were tied together with a thin white string. Now, detectives on the scene say the first thing that they immediately noticed when lifting the suitcase out of the water was that it was heavy. There was clearly something heavy inside of the suitcase, and once it was out of the water, there was a clear smell of death coming from the suitcase. Now, before being opened, the suitcase was sent to the medical examiner, who, when opening the suitcase, found the body of a young girl inside, and dental records, as well as the clothing the girl was wearing, were able to confirm that the girl inside of the suitcase was, in fact, Sandra Cantu. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back. 
Now, there was an autopsy and toxicology report done on Sandra, and the toxicology report showed that Sandra had been drugged with a drug called benzodiazepine, which I am probably pronouncing incorrectly. However, this drug is a sedative, and Sandra's body didn't have any visible injuries. She had no cuts or scrapes or bruises. The only thing the medical examiner found was a small scratch inside of Sandra's bottom lip. The medical examiner concluded that Sandra was sedated and smothered before being put into the pond. It was also found in the autopsy that Sandra had been sexually assaulted, and it was concluded that she was assaulted with a foreign object, and after her assault, her murderer redressed Sandra in the clothes she had been wearing, which indicated to police that this most likely was someone who knew Sandra and who possibly felt guilt and wanted her to look presentable when she would be found. Once Sandra's body was recovered, everyone was absolutely heartbroken. This entire town was devastated. Sandra's aunt described Sandra as becoming, quote, Tracy's daughter. Tracy being the town that they all lived in because everyone treated Sandra and her family as their own during this entire time. So finding her body and realizing that she had already passed was absolutely devastating. Obviously, after so many days had passed after her disappearance, the chances of her being found alive came less and less. However, the hope that Sandra would be found alive and safe was always always there up until her body was discovered. So once Sandra's body was found, this case was automatically moved from a missing persons case to a homicide case, and police knew now that they had a killer on their hands, and they needed to find whoever it was before they possibly struck again. Now once Sandra's body was discovered, police had a pretty clear vision of who they believed the killer was. Considering the fact that the note that Melissa had supposedly found stating where the body was, as well as the practice words written on a sticky note found in Melissa's car, and the same paper that was found in her nightstand being the one on the note. And to top it all off after that, Melissa's suitcase was the one that Sandra's body was found in. Based off of all of these things, authorities had now named Melissa as their primary suspect in this case. And the next thing they wanted to do was they wanted to polygraph Melissa in regards to Sandra's disappearance. However, they were actually unable to do this because Melissa had been admitted to the hospital right around this time after she attempted suicide from swallowing razor blades. Now, while they were waiting for Melissa to be released from the hospital, authorities went around and decided to start talking to some of Melissa's family members instead, which is when they learned that Melissa had a side to her that she had been hiding from the rest of the world. Now, according to Melissa's family, Melissa had a very dark side. Two months prior to Sandra's murder, she had actually gotten arrested for petty theft from a department store, and two years prior to that, Melissa had been named a person of interest in two different arson fires. However, charges were not filed against her for that. Melissa also suffered from depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, and would often abuse her medications that she was taking. And what's crazy is this is not the first time that Melissa had been accused of endangering a child. Three months before Sandra disappeared, a parent of a girl in the trailer park actually accused Melissa of taking her daughter to a local park without her permission. The girl's mom said that when she returned home with her daughter, that her daughter 
daughter was acting strange. Her speech was slurred, she wasn't able to control her balance, and she was clearly very, very drowsy. The girl was rushed to the hospital and her blood results showed that she also had benzodiazepine in her system, which just as a reminder was the same drug that was found in Sandra's body in her toxicology report. Now, Melissa denied all of these accusations made against her from this original circumstance and no charges were filed against her at the time. Now, while trying to collect evidence against Melissa, there was a witness who came forward who lived on Whitehall Road, which was near the pond where Sandra's body was found, who on the night of March 27th, when Sandra went missing, had gone out to dinner with his wife, and they had actually passed their pond on the way to the restaurant and saw a small SUV parked right by the side of the pond with the car door open. Now, this couple thought that this was a little strange, so they ended up pulling over to see what the deal was, and when they walked around the car, Melissa had actually just jumped out from the other side, and the two of them had a small conversation. According to the man, he said that he thought that the circumstance was a little weird. However, Melissa very much acted like nothing off-putting or suspicious was happening, and of course, she didn't seem like a threat, so the man ultimately drove off. Now, the point of this was that now the police were able to place Melissa and her car at the burial site of where Sandra's body was discovered, and even though this was a big step in the right direction towards making a potential arrest, this was only circumstantial evidence at this point. So the next step was police got a warrant to search Melissa's grandfather's church. Now, during the search of the church, authorities found the thin white string that was used to tie together the zippers on the suitcase that Sandra's body was found in. This string was actually used on the window drapes of the church. The string was tested and it was a positive match for being the exact same type of string. They also discovered a baking roll pin found in one of the cabinets that had a red smudge on it and authorities thought it was very possible that this red smudge could have been blood and they wanted to test it for fingerprints so they packaged it up and they sent it to the lab. Now, authorities wanted to wait to get the results back on this rolling pin before they made an arrest because they wanted to be 100% certain when they arrested Melissa. They didn't want any slip-ups in this case. Now, at this point, while police were waiting for the lab results to come back, they decided to wiretap Melissa's cell phone. And just the following day after that, they heard a shocking phone call just two days after she had been released from the hospital. So when authorities wiretapped Melissa's cell phone, they actually overheard a phone call that she had with Maria, Sandra's mother, just two days after Melissa got released from the hospital. And on this phone call, Melissa asked Sandra's mother if Sandra's sister could come over and play with her daughter. Now, Sandra's family had no idea at this point that Melissa was being looked into by the authorities, so this phone call wasn't alarming to her. However, when police heard this, they were absolutely shocked. 
They figured that the reason Melissa was asking for Sandra's sister to come over and play with her daughter was so that she could ultimately kill another girl. Once authorities got a hold of this phone call, they sent a detective over to Melissa's house immediately and instructed this officer to walk up to Melissa's door, play it cool, calm, and collected, and just knock on the door and see what was going on. This cop, by the way, was an undercover detective, and when the detective went up to Melissa's door, luckily, Sandra's sister was not there, and because the detective needed to kind of come up with a reason that he was there without throwing Melissa off, he casually asked her to come down to the station to give a formal statement. Now, this formal statement turned into a five-hour-long interrogation where authorities ultimately presented Melissa with the evidence that they had against her, and this is when Melissa cracked. When authorities told Melissa that her car was seen on Whitehall Road and she was placed there by a witness, she immediately burst into tears and eventually Melissa confessed. She said that this whole thing was an accident and that she didn't kill Sandra, she just died. Melissa said that Sandra and her daughter were playing hide and seek and Sandra hid in the suitcase. Melissa said that she forgot Sandra was in the suitcase when she grabbed it and put it in her car, driving it to the church that she worked at. And when she went inside of the church, she left the suitcase in the back of the car that Sandra was in from playing hide and seek with her daughter. And by the time she came back to her car, she saw the suitcase and realized what a terrible mistake she had made and realized that Sandra was still in there. However, at that point, it was too late and Sandra had stopped breathing and passed away. Now, what's interesting in the interrogation, in the midst of the tears, Melissa said that she discovered Sandra's body in the suitcase and she presents this whole situation like an accident. However, right after this statement, she follows it by saying, quote, then I killed her, end quote, which the detective questioning her was very thrown off by and responded with, what did you just say? And then she said she tried to give Sandra CPR, but it didn't work. Melissa said she then zipped Sandra back up into the suitcase and threw the suitcase in the pond. Melissa did deny sexually assaulting Sandra, but regardless, Melissa was arrested for the death of Sandra Cantu. And when Sandra's family found out about Melissa, they said they felt absolutely completely betrayed. Obviously, this is someone that they knew very well, someone who they trusted and that they were letting their daughter go over to their house because they trusted this woman so much. She was a mother. She also had a daughter. This was Sandra's best friend's mother. Now, even though Melissa was chalking this up to be a tragic accident, authorities knew that this was not the case. When the lab results came back on the rolling pin found in the church, it showed that there were traces of Sandra's DNA on it. And just as an FYI, Sandra had actually never before been in this church. Her family had never taken her there before. They were not aware of her ever being there anytime prior to this. So this is not something that would be expected. Her DNA should not have been in that church. When authorities looked through Melissa's computer, they found an article that Melissa had recently read about another young child who was murdered by her 
grandfather and put into a suitcase and thrown into the river, which showed police that this was premeditated. And based off of everything they now knew, police were able to put together a timeline of what they believe happened that day. Now, according to authorities, they believe that Sandra was walking to a friend's house and during this, she came across Melissa, who had asked her if she wanted to go with her to decorate the church. Now, Sandra being the eager to help social little girl she was, she said yes, and the two of them got into Melissa's car and drove to the church. Authorities believe this is where Melissa made Sandra a drink that she'd laced with the drug that was eventually found in her system, and once Sandra drank it, Melissa waited for her to be unconscious and then at 5 p.m. made a call to the trailer park manager stating that her suitcase had been stolen just to premeditate an alibi for herself. Shortly before 6 p.m. was when Melissa was seen near the pond by those two witnesses. So this all happened within the span of about two hours. So it happened very quickly. Then on April 10th, 2009, Melissa was arrested and she ended up taking a plea deal where she pleaded guilty to first degree murder and kidnapping of Sandra in order to avoid the death penalty. She was then sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now at her sentencing, Melissa spoke and said, quote, I still cannot fully understand why I did what I did. This is a question I will struggle with for the rest of my life, end quote. Now, as far as motive goes, this is actually kind of interesting because authorities believed that Melissa murdered Sandra out of attention and jealousy. Police believed that Melissa is an attention seeker and having inserted herself in the case twice before she was arrested, once with the suitcase and once with the note, showed that she wanted to be the center of attention. As far as the jealousy, I'm not exactly sure what she would have been jealous of. I think the fact that this is something that Melissa has attempted to do on another child prior to Sandra is extremely telling. And obviously there's never a proper motive that would justify what happened to Sandra. However, that is just what police believe. So that you guys is this case. Melissa is currently serving life in prison and will never be released. I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. Do you think Melissa would have killed again had she gotten away with it the first time? What do you think the actual motive was? Now, regardless of anything, a beautiful young girl's life was ripped away from her by a senseless murderer, and I'm glad that Sandra's family was able to receive some sort of justice, even though they'll never have their daughter back. So let me know what you guys think. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. You can always email me your questions, thoughts, concerns, cases, suggestions. I go through all those emails. So let me know what you think. And with that being said, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, my name is Savannah. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button and review the podcast if you have a chance. We upload episodes every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. So with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. I will see you in the next one. And until then, stay safe, guys. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. 
exploreminnesota.com live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.